welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Once again, I'm going to refer to that retreat I'm trying to do. Now about to start week eight, an Ignatian retreat led by a priest at St. Peter Chanel Church in Hawaiian Gardens, Father Ed Room. This week is about gaining a knowledge through the Holy Spirit and meditation on the life of Jesus. Of which side are we on? His or Satan's? There is no middle ground, I am told, and as the days pass of my life, I am beginning to see that more clearly. That assumes, of course, that one believes in Christ and or Satan, and I do. It's a question to ask when one gets to a certain age. What is it you believe in? Or as a Catholic Christian, who is it that I believe in? Who is it that I believe in? Who is it that I will follow to the grave? Am I following someone to the grave and, and finally see whether there is another side? I take the position there is one, and I'm either not brave enough or stupid enough to think otherwise, as an atheist does. The atheist would say that it isn't bravery or stupidity, but only logic not to believe. Well, it seems to me that the logic falls on either side of the equation, so good luck with that, without taking reason a little bit further to faith. Anyway, to follow or not to follow, that is the question pardon to Hamlet and Shakespeare there, in the New Testament you see the veritable bevy of people who encounter Jesus, some of whom immediately accepted all that he was, and all that he promised, and all that he exacted in following him, while others, who seemed very nice, even good enough, like what we call today the good Catholic, I'm a good Catholic, to say, yes, I'm coming with you. And then those perfectly wonderful people did not. In the meditation that I did, I think yesterday, about how St. Matthew, a most hated and most low tax collector, someone you'd never expect to concede to this itinerant preacher whom the Pharisees thought a blasphemer, that Matthew, in the briefest of moments, simply got up from this life he was living and became one of the apostles. A retreat leader, Father Broom, suggests that what really got to Matthew was the gaze of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, whether Matthew knew it or not at that moment, was the Son of God, perfectly divine and perfectly human. He looked at Matthew, asked him to join him in so few words, to follow him, and Matthew just did it, while others who were leading arguably better lives in the thinking of the world and even in religious terms walked away. Lord, your saying is too hard. You can hear their voices in the winds of 2,000 years past and still now. Even before this retreat, I've often thought about the gaze of Christ. I even did a whole blog, and I'm going to talk about a little bit of that blog. I even talked about his gaze from a crucifix and how it appeals to me and how it comforts me and challenges me. 
So how in these days, these modern days, does Christ gaze at me and you? Well, I can only in this podcast speak of how he constantly gazes at me and how, alas, so far, I tend to say, your sayings, Lord, are too hard. So let me go back. As I said, after this meditation, I recalled that I often have thought about the gaze of Christ for me now. It's stirred in my imagination on many occasions. And I know I've mentioned this either in this podcast or in my blog. Shameless plug, by the way, Jin from the Bronx, Chapter 3. And the particular uh, entry is called The Gaze of Christ. It's got to be over 20 years ago that one of my former pastors, late pastors now, managed to acquire a prop from the Franco Zeffirelli movie Brother Sun, Sister Moon, a facsimile of the San Damiano cross that spoke to St. Francis in a dilapidated church. Jesus said to Francis, Francis, rebuild my church. The prop was in a passing scene, and somehow our then pastor saw it in a catalog of things being auctioned, and somehow he got it and replaced an expensive on loan Flemish tapestry that was lackluster in my non-expert view with this amazing piece of movie art done by an Italian set decorator who was also an architect and artist extraordinaire named Lorenzo, quote, Renzo, Mangiardino. To me, that movie prop has been sanctified in its place above the tabernacle in which our actual Lord reposes. And the ability to cast my eyes from one to the other, from the tabernacle to the crucifix, when I am seeking focus in prayer, has always felt potentially transformative. I certainly know that when I come into the church, that crucifix, right in the center, as you walk down the aisle, large and in colorful earth tones, welcomes me in a way that I never experienced before. It's strange that though the figure is, of course, twisted and tortured, the face seems not merely resigned, but at the peace which only the consummation of a plan of salvation could offer. The possibility that God's creatures could now come back into the fold, the gate opened to any who will say, Yes, Lord, I will follow you. And as I get to my pew and I sit there seeking immersion in his presence, as he sits in the tabernacle, the eyes of the Jesus on this providential prop seems to embrace me wherever I sit or walk in the church. It causes me to say, Here I am, Lord, I come to do your will. I believe, just for a moment, that this time I truly mean that, his grace washing over me in invitation. Long ago, some wonderful parishioner took a very professional photograph of this face of Christ, which I purchased at some parish fundraiser. I put the picture in a small remaining space on the wall over my bed, along with some other objects of memory, and sometimes I'd stop ever so briefly and just gaze myself, doing some gazing, into the eyes that gazed back at me. What do you wish of me, Lord? Somehow the question, 
or was it the answer, frightened me, and I would disconnect quickly and onto things of daily life. When I was young, I never saw much of icons, the kind done by Orthodox Christians or Eastern Rite Catholics. They weren't really much in Catholic churches, at least the ones I went into growing up in the Bronx. I don't know, maybe they became more popular in later years, or I became aware of them, or my education sort of drew me to them. I know that in 2013, when I was in London at the St. Paul's Cathedral, which is the marvelous church, or one of the marvelous churches of our Anglican brothers and sisters, that still has bullet holes in its edifice from World War II. I was there, and I was walking around, and I saw these two icons. One was of Jesus, and the other of Our Lady of Perpetual Help, Mother holding the child. And I didn't see that I wasn't supposed to take photos. So I did, and I kept them. The photos came out so well that I had them up on my living room wall for several years. At some point, I rearranged my living room, and they got packed up. And just the other day, I found the one of Our Lady and put that back on my living room wall. As to Our Lord and his icon, I obtained another, not horribly expensive, but to me quite beautiful, from a company named Monastery Icons, and it is an icon of the Sacred Heart. When I created a corner in my already stuffed bedroom, complete with a prie I know I have mentioned before, and some flameless candles, and my favorite rocking chair, in which to sit fitfully as I do when I try to pray, I hung that new icon on the wall. When I sit before to pray in my peripatetic way, the part of the icon that draws me are two parts, two. His hand pointing to his sacred heart, and then even more, his eyes. I worry just a little. Remember, this is just a painting. It is not itself the Lord, just a representation of him. What is this icon really? What is its purpose, and is it assisting me in prayer? You know how in some parishes, there are folks from various cultures who you will see standing in front of a statue and touching the feet or face. Are they worshipping the statue somehow? Well, maybe a few people are. Maybe some who confuse symbolism with superstition might be doing so. But in my reading about icons, I know what they are. They're a way to form an image in the mind of the true person, the true Son of God, helping us to keep focused on the heaven to which we are invited. So someone like me who finds it hard to pray, it gives me a focus. I'm looking at the eyes and I am able for a bit of time to push out all the other distractions. What icons are essentially are another form of sacramental. I don't have the Eucharist in my home to adore. So this picture, like a crucifix, like the rosary, disposes me to the grace I'm always receiving from God, but so often either ignoring or unaware of, so I can keep him ever before my face and to direct my thoughts and my actions. I offer selections of a summary, an article from a National Catholic Register of around November 2011 about what an icon is and does. 
which, as the article says, is so often misunderstood even by Catholics. I thought this article really helped me get it, and let me just read some sections of it, giving them full credit. As I always say, I highly recommend that you read this article in full and many other articles and discussions of icons so that it kind of helps orient you when you, and if you, get your own. According to the article, the word icon comes from the Greek word ikon, which means image. The artist, the iconographer, is said to, quote, write an icon because it's intended to be visual scripture. The icon is most often a painting, but it can also be carved, cast in metal, or done as a mosaic. It usually portrays Jesus, an angel, or a saint. Going down further in the article, icons use a language all their own to reveal a deeper meaning. The invisible spiritual dimension is conveyed through symbols. Jesus always has a cross in his halo. Mary has three stars in her garments to show she was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. A profile image means those depicted have not yet reached salvation, such as Judas in the Last Supper or a shepherd in the Nativity. Saints, on the other hand, face forward, as do images of Jesus, because we will see him face to face in heaven. Icons of Christ and other holy images remind the viewers to reflect on the lives and virtues of those depicted. Going on, signs and symbols were especially important in the early church when most people could not read. And they also note that for a time, religious art was questioned. And there was a moment in the church when images were questioned as idolatry, but the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 established that they were a means by which God's grace comes into our life. Once again, this is from an article in the National Catholic Register of November 2011, and it's by Patty McGuire Armstrong. And you can find that she has, or had, I don't know if she still does, a website called pattymcguirearmstrong.com. When I go to Mass and I receive the Eucharist, I'm getting direct access, poignant access, to Jesus still present among us. The rosary, the crucifix, the icon, these things we use when we pray in church or privately pray at home, they point us again and again to that which is our goal. And in these times, I don't know about you, I need these resources as much or more as anyone did in the past. Perhaps more so because so much of the world has simply ceased to believe in God and has added one more old-time obstacle, the press to keep you and I from believing and from accessing the sacramentals and ultimately the sacraments themselves. Think about it. Having the sacramentals in the earlier stages of the pandemic lockdown was a saving grace, literally a saving grace, because we couldn't receive the sacraments directly for, what, a month or two? And in some churches, well longer after that? Talk about a spiritual lifeline. The sacramentals stimulate our imaginations. When I look at the icon that I have of the Sacred Heart, I can pretend that I am in Jerusalem at the time Jesus was walking the earth, true God and true man. Have you ever known anyone whose eyes just mesmerized you? 
I have. It wasn't just the physicality of the person's eyes. It was something about what the person conveyed, a wraparound warmth and a clear, palpable wish also conveyed of wishing the complete good of the other, in this case me. Imagine that with Jesus. If someone in our lives gave us a measure of this extraordinary caring, what of Jesus stopping in front of you and me, eye to eye, soul to soul, his eyes caressing yet exhorting to follow him? That's what an icon does, not all the time, but when the connection is made as I sit in my rocking chair and look at it. Of late, for some reason, the lyrics of a song from the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, it was a, a Broadway show of the 60s and 70s that I have to tell you I have reservations about still to this day because that sort of primarily humanistic version of Christ, solely humanistic, was part of why we find ourselves where we are now, forgetting the divine in favor of a man-centered faith. And so I'm a little reserved about mentioning this, but the lyrics still keep rattling in my head, and I think they, in them themselves, make good sense. The song is Day by Day, and this is the lyric. Day by day, day by day, O oh, sweet Lord, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day. I actually think that's a pretty good prayer. And those sacramentals, the icon, the rosary, the crucifix on my wall, when I cannot be receiving the actual sacraments, help me to think about those three things and try to act upon them. When I think of my current life, right now it seems that I'm only at item one, stage one, with terrible imperfection, aiming to see him more clearly. I want his gaze to change me. But of course... I always find another worry. The in-person gaze to Matthew, the sinful tax collector of whom the Pharisees so disapproved, moved him so much that he saw immediately who Jesus was from the first. He loved him and followed him all at once. But that young man who already followed the commandments looked into Jesus's eyes as Jesus penetrated his soul and yet he still walked away. Jesus throws everything of himself at us with the full gaze of heaven contained in his gaze. And yet, so many of us do not commit to follow him. Worse, we walk away and substitute our thoughts and feelings for those of the salvation he offers. Why? When Jesus's fortune seemed to be on the rise, it must have seemed great, wonderful, easy to follow him. And I'm guessing, I'm pretty sure, that there was a pride in being with this preacher, this famous preacher. But then, of course, there was the reality that he would be reviled and crucified. And he told them this was going to happen, and they weren't hearing him. So no matter how strong his gaze, all but John and Jesus's mother and a few others walked away. That includes Matthew. Though there is no specific story about the details of his failure, 
Judas, as we know, betrayed him. But unlike the other apostles, especially Peter, he became despondent, committed the sin of despair, and hung himself. Oh, but Peter, he did something that we'd find horribly scary, but would be the salvation of us because what he did is he repented and he wept bitterly. I have a real image of that. Have you ever wept bitterly? I have. I don't know if it was over a sin, but I have wept bitterly. But to weep bitterly because of a betrayal of the man who gazed at me and who invited me to be part of his eternal life, ooh, that must be some series of bitter tears. The, let me call it a trick of being a Christian, is having a trust that sticks when the inevitable suffering comes, which it does relatively often. And therein lies the rub, because mostly the trust goes way by the boards, as it did for the apostles, when real suffering presents itself. And you and I know that there are varieties of suffering and that our tendency to walk away can come way before any kind of period of utter crucifixion, as it were. So, like Peter, there is this other step that we have to take. And that's the step that, to me, requires even more trust. And that is to come back after having betrayed which is what a sin is. You betray God. The gaze of Christ is not merely an invitation to follow him, but it also says you always can come back. Always. And that's where one can argue, and one can argue, that I am in complete control. I think one thing that this retreat that I've been on has gotten me to see that I didn't really ever see that confession, that this confession, this sacrament of reconciliation, one of the seven sacraments is so important. And when we sin, that's when we most need the gaze of Christ or its memory so that we won't do what the devil has set us up for to walk away. I can't cooperate if I don't accept and absorb and act on the inexhaustible wave of grace that washes over me every moment of my life. Maybe that's why we get told to pray constantly. Prayer is the eternal access point. Sometimes I think, I think that maybe I'm starting to get it, that the richness of my faith, the Catholic faith, that provides all the tools from salvation is just something I need to keep reaching for. That I, or anyone who takes this so casually, is not merely unfortunate. In a way, it's a sin itself. Short of making us automatons, God has given us everything to dispose us to love him so that we will obey, meaning that we will listen to him for our own good, for our own eternal good. In Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and all the other anonymous entities, they talk of one day at a time when it comes to addiction. For today, I will not lapse. We are sin addicts. 
all of the graces around us give us the strength today not to sin, to follow Jesus. On a personal note, today I'm having a hard time. I went to bed very late. I could not sleep. I have a habit of doing that. And then I got up very late and was in a kind of a grouchy mood. I wish I could say that I'm not often in grouchy moods, but I have the tools right around me. Maybe if I think of the gaze of Christ right now, I will walk into my small little prayer place and look at him and ask for his grace. And hopefully this day, this mood will turn around. Maybe if I think of that gaze when I receive communion, when I go to confession, and of course, as I just said, when I pray in front of my icon, maybe that so love-filled, profound gaze will capture me and finally keep me captured. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I hope you have a good weekend, and as Lent is starting to wind down, take the opportunity to go to your parish church and sit before our Lord and absorb his perfect gaze.